Hello, and welcome to Mies Unsmashed, the only podcast where we break the Smash Brothers cinematic universe one game at a time. I'm your co-host, Pete Simmons-Hayes. And I'm your other co-host, Simon Lewis Ong. And today, we're letting us have one. Yeah, we're, we're changing things up a little bit today. Normally, we have a guest on, and our, that guest joins us and pitches us their their film in a Super Smash Brothers cinematic universe. But, you know, we kind of were going through all this trouble of putting this podcast together, and we kind of thought, man, it'd be a shame if we didn't pitch anything. We're both writers ourselves. Yeah, we're, and... we're the best writers at, out of the, the group, so <laughs> we would be doing you a disservice, honestly. <laughs> now, as a, as a happy coincidence, Pete and I actually share the same favorite video game of all time. Yeah, it's actually how we became friends. We hadn't met in person, but we both got into NYU and we're just like looking through the Facebook group, just trying to find friends, and both of us, just these virgin fucking losers, <laughs> just find each other's Facebook profiles, and yeah, we just kind of slid into each other's DMs and started talking Earthbound. Yeah, we were talking Earthbound and Legend of Korra, but right. that's, that's what brings us here today, is we are pitching our adaptation of Earthbound. Uh, and there's a lot of firsts today. Uh, for one, uh, it, we might sound a little different because we are recording, for the first time, we were recording in person with each other. Yeah. So been, Simon's right next to me. We've been doing it over Zoom uh, thus far, but we're, we're finally sitting down in the same room together to for this very special episode. And the second first is we are not pitching a film like every episode prior. We are pitching a TV series. Yeah, Earthbound is a it's a pretty long story and there's a lot of characters and locations in it and we felt that we would be doing it a disservice if we tried to squeeze it into a 2-hour film. We have been working for the last 2 weeks on the treatment document of a 10-episode miniseries adaptation and Pete we kind of we kind of got stupid. We got with it. we got carried away. This yeah. was this was dumb. What we did, don't do what we did. We wrote a forty-eight page treatment around how many words? Simon, was it over twenty-six thousand? Over twenty-six thousand words in the span of two weeks. We worked every night of the week on this um, for no money. <laughs> yeah, we 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 don't make money through this podcast yet. No one was paying us. We put in hours and hours of work. But it's, it's a game that we care a lot about. It's a story that means a lot to us. And we really wanted to do it justice. Right. And so heads up, this might be a, a much longer episode than we're used to. But we figured, screw it, it's our podcast. We're going we're gonna to let us... Yeah, I mean, all of you listeners are losers anyway. You guys have no lives. You'll sit down and listen to four hours of us talking anyway, right? No cuts. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this idea to do this for a long time. Earthbound specifically... And we both agree that if we ever reach a point in our careers where we have the rights to Earthbound, somehow someone has the rights to Earthbound and they need someone to adapt it, we want this pitch ready to go because we legitimately think this is great and we want to make it. Nintendo, sell us the rights. All right, Pete, I think uh, I think we should jump in because we truly have a lot to get through today. Yeah, do we have bios? Choose your character. Pete Simmons-Hayes is an L.A.-based writer and sketch comedian who only seems to get things done when it's out of spite. A finalist in the ScreenCraft competition for his pilot about his 39 brothers and sisters, Pete is currently at Pocket Watch, where he helps produce the hit children's YouTube series, Love Diana. But putting that aside, 
Pete's proudest work is his spec script of The Good Doctor, where The Good Doctor is mauled by a bear, falls off a mountain, and is forced to conduct surgery on himself. It's literally funnier than anything he's ever tried at. Simon Lewis Ong is a starving LA-based screenwriter who is actively seeking employment in the entertainment industry. You should hire him. Simon attended New York University, where he majored in screenwriting and won the Venable Herden Award for Excellence in Screenwriting. I mean, it's your major, bro. You should be excellent. He currently spends his days writing and co-producing this very show. If you want to harass him at his side gig as an essential worker, visit Mardi Gras Tuesday on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, where you can tell Simon's boss that he's doing a great job. Before we get started, we thought it best that we give you the gist of Earthbound, since odds are you probably have no idea what Earthbound is. And that's okay, because it's not a Mario, it's not a Zelda. The game was actually a flop here in America, because some guy in the Nintendo of America boardroom was like, What if we make the game smell? Smell good? No. And that launched this ad campaign known as This Game Stinks, where magazines informed the children of the US of A that this new game, Earthbound, stinks. It was a Nickelodeon approach. Whoa, look at how wacky and gross we are. This guy's a fucking And that works when you're watching Jack Black get slimed at the Kids' Choice Awards, but you don't want your Rugrats DVD to have green goo. You never once wanted that. Same thing applies to a game. Kids don't want their game to stink or nothing. So no one bought it, and Earthbound's legacy became Ness's appearance in Super Smash Bros. And you grew to know him as that Caillou child with the voice, Okay. And you'd ask whoever would listen, why does he sound like that? Unfortunately, I agree with you, and I can't answer that question. He sounds weird, but what I can answer is why we think it's special and how we think it should translate into a show. And even if you don't like video games and you're listening to this as a favor, you've probably heard of the standard RPG. You go on a journey, you level up. There's a lot of medieval shit, swords, sorcerers, shields, big titty anime girls. It's basically Dungeons and Dragons. It's nerd shit, and not that nerd shit is bad, We like nerd shit, but what if it doesn't have to be nerd shit? What if it could be for other people? And that's where Shigesato Itoi comes in. Shigesato Itoi was a Japanese C-list celebrity that hadn't made a game in his life. But he's done a million other things, and he'll do a million more. He voiced the dad in My Neighbor Totoro, he was a guest judge on Iron Chef, and he was even a competitive fisher at one point. He's a certified dabbler. And he comes into Miyamoto's office in the late 80s saying, I don't have any gaming experience. Let me make an RPG with all your money. And Miyamoto was like, I don't know, but sure. So this guy, never coded in his life, now has the reins to a first-party IP owned by the most influential gaming company ever at the time. That's objectively cool. That's like if a guy who never wrote music in his life gave it a go and ended up writing Ziggy Stardust. And because this guy wasn't in the gaming world, every creative choice he made broke an RPG convention. The Mother series wasn't some guy in a village going to a cave with maidens and shit. It was now a little boy with a bat and a yo-yo going to the next town over because a talking fly told him to. Even the way the NPCs spoke was different. In most RPGs, the people you talk to are only there to give you information on where you should go next. But Mother doesn't do that. Almost every line in Earthbound is some type of joke. 
there was just as much focus on the game having a personality as there was on the gameplay. And that personality, the idea of an RPG where the role you're taking on isn't that different from the one you take on in real life, influenced a bunch of games that people love today, like Undertale and Pokemon. Earthbound's greatest strength is how itself it is, which means that if you want to recapture that magic in an adaptation, you can't be afraid to go weird and offbeat as well, even if it means taking it in a different direction. But the thing is, is we're not geniuses. We're not going to try to reinvent TV for a podcast. So instead, we're modeling our show after a program that did try. A program where, much like Earthbound, a creator took a genre that we know and flipped it on its head and showed us what else TV could be. I'm talking about David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Like Earthbound, it takes place in the 90s, has a large cult following, and features little road bumps of absurdity mapped to a format that we're familiar with. In Twin Peaks' case, that was the TV crime thriller. In ours, that genre is the coming-of-age sci-fi adventure. Think of it like we're pitching you Stranger Things if it was dressing up as Twin Peaks for Halloween. We think that sounds cool. So, with all that being said, let's break the story. Break the story! Episode 1, Fuzzy Pickles. So we begin in a warped, heightened version of 90s United States that we'll call Eagle Land. And visually, everything has a lo-fi 90s look to it, almost like you're watching a lost show that never aired in 96. We open up on this average-looking town surrounded by grassy hills on all sides. The only thing remotely special about this town is a mysterious-looking giant footstep carved into a nook of the mountain overlooking this place. It's currently nighttime, and all of the stars are out. But suddenly, we hear something, and it gets louder and louder. And we cut to Earthbound. We then fade in from title and we open on Ness, a young boy looking up at the outer space stickers that decorate his ceiling. He's being tucked into bed by his mom. She's reading him a bedtime story about some hero on a journey or whatever. And the first vibe we get is that he's a little too old for this. He's like a year or two out from when your mom quits telling you stories, but he clearly still enjoys this activity. Now, let's talk about Ness for a sec. Ness is the type of kid where... He's this normal looking kid. There's nothing explicitly wrong with him. And you can't parse why there might be a target on his back. But you just know he's different. And he knows he's different. And when he talks to people, it seems like he's trying to justify his place and everything. He doesn't really know where he fits with all the other kids. And he doesn't know how to be. And so his mom finishes up the story about the hero and gets up to leave. But right when she gets to the door, Ness says, That guy's like dad. And his mom slowly realizes that he's talking about the hero in the story. And she responds with a safe, motherly smile and says, That's right, sweetie. Get some rest. She turns off the light and Ness is about to go to sleep when there's a streak of light outside and a huge bang and the earth shakes. A meteor has fallen on the nearby mountainside. Mrs. 
business. Okay, remember when I said that he's got no friends? That's actually not true. He does have one friend. That friend is Pokey. Pokey's that type of kid where you're only friends with him because he lives next door to you. It's just a proximity thing. But Pokey's kind of an asshole. He's this fat little bitch. He comes from a rich family. He's got a Cartman energy, I'd say. And he's here to get Ness's help in finding his brother who ran after the meteor immediately when he saw it crash. And Ness, hearing this, rushes to get his stuff and put clothes on. He rushes into his sister's room, and she's all like, What are you doing here? This is my room? And Ness is like, It used to be my room. And she's like, What do I look like to you? Your personal storage bin? These kids all talk like peanuts. It's pretty cute. So Ness goes downstairs, and he's a good boy at heart. He's a rule follower with a healthy respect for parental authority. So before he leaves, he checks with his mom. And Ness's mother lets him go on one condition. And the condition is that he takes his dog, King, for a walk while he's out. In the first weird thing that will happen on this adventure, King talks to Ness. King says, Well, I guess I have no choice but to go. I am but a dog. And when King talks to Ness, it's clear that Ness is familiar with King talking to him. This is not the first time King has opened his mouth to say something to Ness, but it's unclear whether everyone else can hear King. It seems like something that only Ness can do is communicate with this dog, but we don't linger on it. Ness and Pokey sneak by cops who have swarmed the area, suspiciously not letting anyone near the crash site. The kids head toward the mountain summit where they can see the trailing smoke of the meteor crash. And as they make their way up the side of the mountain, Ness and Pokey run into this older guy named Liar X Adjurate. And Liar X is this adult friend of Ness who claims to be a billboard guy, aka he makes his living in manufacturing billboard signs. He's kind of like the adult friend you don't tell your parents about, like that really cool janitor at school. He's, he's like Gordy from Ned's Declassified, but he's a little sketchier than Gordy, I'd say. He's a pathological liar, but he's got a heart of gold. And Liar knows something is up tonight. Something is going on with this meteor. Liar X would go himself, but he's a bit of a coward, and he encourages Ness to go and check out this meteor. He also mentions that he's made a very interesting discovery in that Ness should come back soon by himself. He only trusts Ness. He doesn't like Pokey. Pokey's not nice to him. Ness and Pokey then make their way to the crash site where they find Pokey's little brother, Picky, hiding. He went to explore the sound first, but got scared by himself and is now hiding behind a rock or a tree or something. But just then a huge burst of light erupts from the meteor. And after a moment, just like that, the light's gone. And suddenly Ness hears a buzzing in his ear. Ness turns. There's nothing there. Then it comes from the other ear. Ness then spots a small bug. Hey, Ness. It says in his ear. Ness is all like, who's there? Pokey and Picky don't know what the hell he's talking about, but... This fly, which we'll we'll just call Buzz Buzz. It's easy. You know, he's buzz, you know, he's buzzing. We'll just we'll just call him Buzz Buzz. Okay, we're going from a little to a lot here because Buzz Buzz then tells Ness he is a warrior from the future, sent back in time to foretell a prophecy of a young boy and three friends who will save the world from a malevolent alien force known as Gygus. Ness continues to have this conversation with Buzz Buzz while all the while Pokey and Picky have no idea what's going on and who Ness is talking to and they're just staring at him like he's the weird kid because Ness is just the weird kid. Buzz Buzz tells Ness that in his timeline, Gygus does not take over for another few years, but it is around this time that Gygus arrives on Earth and his influence b begins to spread. 
As Gygus spreads, Nest will notice that animals and people will become increasingly hostile and aggressive towards him. Then Buzz Buzz is all like, We gotta get out of here. I don't think I came through time alone. They rush to the bottom of the mountain, but at the very bottom, Nest bumps into what seems like an invisible wall. This really scary scene where the wall starts to change color glimmer, sort of like in Chicken Little when the sky is falling and you you realize it isn't a sky at all. This invisible wall shimmers and turns into this eight-foot-tall, shiny, alien-looking man that will soon come to know as a Star Man, which is a robot from the future sent to attack Ness. And Ness, Pokey, and Picky, they're all freaking out. Ness has never been in a fight before, but luckily Buzz Buzz, the fly, unleashes a can of unholy whoop-ass on the Star Man. This fly is the most badass motherfucker you've ever seen. Like, he's just using a bunch of weird powers we've never seen before. He's moving things with his mind. He's shooting laser beams at the Star Man. It's crazy. Ness has never seen anything like it. And the Star Man is defeated. He blows up into a billion robot pieces. And Buzz Buzz is like, we have to drop off these kids now. So Ness and Buzz Buzz escort Pokey and Picky, who are in a state of shock, back home. Back at their house, which is much nicer than Ness's house, we meet Pokey and Picky's parents, who are just the worst. Just a couple of rich people. And Mr. Minch takes his sons in the back room and just starts spanking them. And it's this really awkward scene where Ness just like waits in the living room, trying to pretend he doesn't hear Pokey and Picky getting spanked in the other room. And Mrs. Minch uses this opportunity to talk to Ness and also condescend his family at the same time. While she's talking, she notices a fly and swats at him and she gets him like it was nothing. It's a very nonchalant scene. We don't focus on it. We just think it's a fly. But yeah, that fly is Buzz Buzz and he's fucking dead. After completely wrecking this future robot, Buzz Buzz is taken down by a simple middle aged woman with a folded up magazine. And on his deathbed, Buzz Buzz tells Ness that he too has inherited psychic abilities, much like the ones Buzz Buzz used on the Starman. And Ness is like, what are you talking about? And this is kind of our Harry Potter moment with Hagrid. Buzz Buzz says, haven't you noticed that you can do strange things? And Ness thinks about it. He doesn't really know. And then King the dog looks at him and says, yeah, have you? And things kind of click. Then Buzz Buzz goes on. He talks about how Ness is destined for greatness and has to save the world and all this stuff. And he mentions that in order to save the world, he's going to have to go to these eight locations, these eight sanctuaries scattered all across the planets. And at each sanctuary, there is a part of a melody that he will learn. And only by collecting these eight melodies and singing them will they ever have a chance to defeat Gygus. And with his dying breath... Buzz Buzz tells Ness that the first sanctuary Ness must find is a place known as Giant Step. So Ness, shrugging, unsure if what he's witnessing is real, goes home and sleeps on it. And the next day wakes up and says, All right, I guess we're going to Giant Step. And so he leaves his house, ready to set out on this journey. But immediately when leaving, he comes face to face with the weirdest looking guy he's ever seen in his neighborhood. 
It's this man known as the Photo Man. And the Photo Man is this man with a, a big old mustache, twirly mustache. He's wearing a full-on suit and a top hat. And the Photo Man seems to have appeared out of nowhere. And he demands that he take Ness's picture. And Ness is really confused, but the Photo Man insists and claims, It'll all be worth it, dear boy. Please, say Fuzzy Pickles. He takes Ness's picture, and before Ness can ask for the picture, the photo man is gone. The photo man disappears, and Ness doesn't get the picture. Ness decides not to think about it, and Ness instead goes back to Liar, his adult friend, who told him to come back to see him because he found something cool. And Ness enters Liar's house, but Liar isn't there. Instead, there's a huge hole in his floor. So Ness naturally goes down the huge hole, revealing this giant cave that Liar has dug under his house. Liar's crazy. He's unearthed this strange golden statue that seems to have menacing powers. The statue has this weird, strange hold over Liar, bringing out Liar's worst qualities. There's a real Gollum from Lord of the Rings vibe to this. Ness himself finds the statue strangely off-putting, almost like it's at odds with him. And seeing that Liar is occupied with it, Ness leaves and tries to put the uncomfortable imagery out of his head. Ness's real journey begins now. Here's the problem, though. If you're just a little kid and you've been told that you're destined to save the universe, where would you begin exactly? Ness, however, being the precocious young boy that he is, heads into his hometown of Onet and begins collecting information the only way he knows how. By knocking on doors. Excuse me, sir. Have you ever heard of a giant step? Here we meet some of the colorful background characters of Onet. We meet a guy who is obsessed with his trumpet and insists on playing a haunting little tune for Ness. A new age retro hippie who claims that Ness is taking things too seriously and just needs to seriously chill, man. And a guy who really looks like Mr. T but unfortunately doesn't have much use. Ness finally knocks on the door of a local clubhouse made up of local boys just a few years older than Ness. They're a little standoffish and rude to Ness, as kids so often are to slightly younger kids, but they do drop one sweet morsel of information. There's a place called Giant Step up on the mountain, and the key to get there is naturally held by the mayor of Onet. Ness heads to the mayor's office, but finds that his luck just continues to run out. The mayor is so swamped with the gang crisis in downtown Onet that he can't take Ness as a visitor. Ness heads to downtown Onet to see what the issue is and soon discovers that, yes, indeed, downtown Onet is absolutely overrun by the local shark gang. They intimidate passerbys, shoplift, and have completely claimed the arcade as their own. Ness, seeing this as the only solution to get an audience with the mayor, takes it upon himself to solve this problem and heads to the arcade. The sharks are mostly just a bunch of young punks that like to skateboard, blast music, and there's even a group of extreme hula hoopers. However, the the brains behind the operation is Frank, an adult who uses his teenage grunts to run, for all intents and purposes, an extortion ring. Ness heads into the arcade and manages to avoid suspicion as he just looks like another kid coming to play a game. Ness ducks behind a dig dug machine as he waits for the coast to clear, and he soon darts through a back door where Frank hangs out in the back alley. You see, Frank is something of an aspiring inventor slash mad scientist, and he's been working on perfecting his latest machine, the Frankenstein Mark II, a massive tank built in Frank's own image, built for one thing and one thing only, 
destruction. Ness is a little out of his element here. This is a fully grown human adult that now wants to do him physical harm. Ness has never been in a situation like this before, and frankly, it's a little scary. Ness confronts Frank, and using the most adult voice he can muster, utters, I'm gonna beat you up. And Frank, being a generally bad guy, blinks a couple times at Ness and goes, Okay. Ness begins to battle Frank in the machine, but finds that simply using his cracked baseball bat isn't going to cut it. Frankie Stein corners Ness and it appears this may be it, but just as Ness puts his hand over his head to cover himself, energy shoots from his fingertips, hitting and disabling the Frankie Stein. Ness and Frank both look at each other, stunned. Frank snaps out of it first and makes a move towards Ness. Almost without thinking, Ness raises his hand at Frank and stuns him with the same energy. So it's true then. He does have psychic powers. Everything BuzzBuzz told him was true. If Ness had any doubt about his mission, it's now entirely gone. After the battle, Ness demands an audience with the mayor of Onet, B.H. Perkle, who doesn't believe him at first, but quickly comes around when this little boy shows him the pile of gang members he has beat up in front of the arcade. The mayor awards him with the key to Giant Step as thanks for aiding in Frank's arrest. He finally makes it through to Giant Step, which is located in the nook of a restricted cave at the edge of town. It's a moment of great relief. Just by being in Giant Step, it triggers a vision from Ness's childhood, a recurring event as he visits the sanctuary locations. This first vision is of Ness meeting King as a puppy. We hear the first of the eight melodies. Ness stands in the literal giant footprint, looking at the sky as if wondering where that came from. Then Ness hears the voice of a girl. Another vision flashes in Ness's mind. It's the source of the voice, a young girl about Ness's age with blonde hair and a cute pink bow. She has a kind face that is both innocent and yet much more mature and worldly than Ness. She turns to Ness. Help me, Ness. End of episode. Episode 2, Lilliput Steps. Ness, learning that the voices come from Paula, a girl from Tucson, heads back towards Onette and the road to Tucson. But he's stopped on the way by a local beat cop. Ness, right? The chief of police wants to personally congratulate you for defeating the shark gang all by yourself. Follow me down to the station, would you? Ness is taken to the station where there's a kind of menacing scene as Ness is taken by cops down a long hallway under the pretense that they just want to show him something. They make it to the chief's office where Ness proceeds to have a tense, drawn-out conversation with him. Ness then notices a statue that resembles the Mani Mani statue, the statue that we previously saw dug up by Liar Exaggerate on the chief's shelf. What is that? Ness asks. Uh, Just a statue I got for being the best chief in the history of this town. At this point, the officers have filed into the room and are blocking the doorway. Let's cut the garbage, kid. I can't have people knowing you did our job here better than we ever could. Do you know what happens to meddlesome punks like you? They get sent to boarding school, up in winters. The bus is on its way now. The stakes are high for Ness, and he lashes out at the police officers. It's six to one. 
insurmountable odds, but Ness just narrowly manages to make it out of there, and he makes a hasty escape to Tucson. He's heard of Tucson. As a kid, you're always a little aware of the next town over from you, but this would be the first time he'd walk over there all by himself. He begins down the forest path leading to Tucson, and, and he's clearly on edge, jumping at the slightest sound. He speedwalks, wanting to get out of there and reach civilization as soon as possible. In his haste, he trips over something and face plants. He looks to see what he tripped on, and he sees a mushroom with legs who scampers off, pretty much in the same fashion that Ness was speedwalking. Ness sighs in relief and tries to get up but falls back down. His body feels weird. His limbs aren't working the way they're supposed to. Was it from touching that mushroom? In this incapacitated state, Ness wobbles the rest of the way there, barely making it to Tucson in one piece. The world outside of Onette is way scarier than he could have ever imagined. Aren't you a little old to be by yourself? Cut to Ness walking out of Tucson Hospital, ready for his real journey to begin. He explores the town. He passes a theater where he hears jazz music coming from. He passes a bike shop. While gathering intel, he meets a slobby kid who refers to himself only as Apple Kid. I'm Apple Kid. He claims to be an inventor. I'm an inventor. Ness ultimately makes it to an outdoor market, Berglund Park, where he is confronted by Everdred, a sketchy old dude who lives in the park, who, from the intel that Ness has gathered from around Tucson, was the last person to see Paula. Everdred sells his homemade honey at the Berglund Park Farmer's Market, which he affectionately labels as fly honey. From the looks of Everdred and the honey itself, it's fair to say that this honey may have more than a few flies in it. Everdred makes Ness buy a jar in exchange for his information. Ness does so, and Everdred tells Ness that he saw Paula being abducted by strange figures in blue hooded cloaks and take her out of Tucson toward Happy Happy Valley. Ness heads toward Happy Happy Valley, but the way is blocked by a massive obelisk in the shape of a pencil. Why a pencil? Ness returns to Tucson, where he enlists the help of Orange Kid, a competent-seeming inventor who runs a very tight ship and keeps an organized household. If he were around today, he'd be a big Elon Musk guy. But Ness soon discovers that he's an absolute shit inventor. Ness asks him to invent something, and he's all, Yeah, let me get to work. And then he just sits there like an idiot. Ness leaves, and when all seems lost, Ness stumbles upon Apple Kid again, who's looking real sad and dejected. But he does his best inventing when he's sad. Apple Kid offers him the pencil eraser, a machine with the ability to erase pencils. What are the odds of that? It must be fate. The two become fast friends. Ness takes the machine with him and gives Apple Kid a word of encouragement before he goes. No one's ever said that to me before. Ness arrives at a small shack where none other than Pokey is standing outside. Ness talks to Pokey, who's being all weird and creepy. There's a girl in there, he says. This guy from the town over gave me a couple bucks to stand watch here, but I guess because I know you, Ness, you can go inside. Inside, he finds Paula. Paula tells him that she's been locked away by Mr. Carpainter, the head of a nearby cult, the Happy Happiests, who has mysterious powers. Paula instructs Ness to go combat Carpainter and retrieve the key to her cell. This will protect you. She pins the Franklin badge on him. Now, nothing can hurt you. Ness has no idea what this means, but God damn it, he's just excited to be so close to this pretty girl. The sexual tension between these 10-year-olds is insane. 
Nest makes his way to Happy Happy Village, a super creepy little town with colonial architecture, like one of those Massachusetts historical recreation towns, but everything is painted blue. It's completely empty except for a cow that's also been painted blue. The only sounds come from the church, where there's creepy music playing. Ness makes his way into the church, where there's just a massive gathering of cultists, all wearing their blue robes. They literally move as a mass. As Ness walks through the church, they shift and part like a blue-red sea and clear a passage for Ness to move forward. Ness confronts Carpenter, who has a large Mani Mani statue of his own that seems to have taken control of him. Ness begins to fight Carpenter, but Carpenter unleashes his electrical powers. A lightning bolt hits Ness, but the energy is absorbed by the Franklin badge, the badge that Polly gave him, and shot back out, blowing a hole in the side of the church. Carpenter begins to orate some of his own philosophy that goes against the central themes of our story. This causes Ness to think about Paula, unlocking PK love for Ness, a psychic ability. Ness uses PK Love, and that shatters the Mani Mani statue, freeing Carpenter from its control. Carpenter wakes up as if in a daze, having no memory of what just happened. The same is true for all the other cultists who have cleared the church and wander around the village confused as to how they got there. Ness rescues Paula, and they head to the Lilliput Steps. It's not a date, it's a mission, but it feels like a date. The Lilliput Steps are beautiful. Ness has a vision of himself as a baby and his father gifting him the red cap that he still wears to this day. He gets the second of the eight melodies. There's a cute moment between Ness and Paula where Paula asks Ness what the melody sounds like and Ness sort of shyly sings it to her. That's all I know. Ness gets a psychic message that the next melody will be found in Saturn Valley. Cut to Threed. We're in a graveyard. A rotted hand shoots up from the ground. The dead are rising. Cut to black. End of episode. Episode 3. The Boy from Up North. We open up on Jeff Andonuts, a shy and nerdy kid who attends a prestigious boarding school in Winters, a faraway country to the north. It's the middle of the night, we need your help. and he wakes up with a sudden jolt. His roommate, Tony, is still awake studying. He, he turns and says, what's up, Jeff? Jeff starts to tell Tony about a dream he was having, but doesn't finish his thought just saying, I have to go, with some conviction. Which is confusing for Tony, because Jeff doesn't ever really say anything with conviction. The two are very close, and Tony considers Jeff his best friend. Jeff doesn't always know how to reciprocate this friendship. He hasn't had a lot of healthy relationships in his life. But Tony is the first friend he's ever had, and for Tony, that's enough. It's also past curfew, and sneaking out of the dorm is not allowed. But seeing that Jeff is so determined, Tony decides to go with Jeff. 
they make their way out of the dorm and outside. There are guards posted by the front gate, so in an attempt to distract them, Jeff, who is a very skilled inventor and mechanic, gets to work on engineering makeshift fireworks, which he sets off and succeeds in distracting the guards. Jeff and Tony then make their way to the front gate. Tony gets on his knees and lets Jeff climb up on him so he can get over the fence. It's it's weirdly touching to see himself basically face plant into the snow just to help his friend. It's, it's very sweet. And when Jeff makes it to the other side, Jeff asks Tony if he's coming with him. But Tony says that he has to stay there. But being an avid gum chewer, he lends Jeff a pack of his favorite bubble gum to remember him by. And he says, you better give this back to me, which is his way of saying they'll see each other again. Jeff makes his way into the snowy forest, which is filled with creatures of the night. Jeff is out of his element here. He's been someone who's always been independent from his parents and has always been on his own, but he's never truly been alone like this before. He hears a rustling in a nearby bush and fears that a large animal of some sort is soon going to attack him, but to his surprise, it's a monkey. The monkey's not immediately friendly. You know, it's it's a it's a monkeys can be sketchy. You know monkeys. It's a sketchy monkey and he starts messing with Jeff and poking through his stuff. Jeff tries to get the monkey to leave him alone. Stop it. The monkey only does when upon spilling Jeff's backpack, he spots the pack of bubble gum given to him by Tony. At first, Jeff is protective of the gum. It's, you know, it's, it's from his friend. It's, it's the thing that'll make him see him again. But the gum does seem to calm the monkey. So Jeff lets him have a piece. Here. Jeff continues to make his way through the forest, noticing that the monkey continues to follow him just a few paces back. It's, it's a little creepy. And it's a little cute. (laughs) Jeff, however, does find himself eventually face-to-face with an angry bear. Jeff cowers, feeling this is the end. Because Jeff's a fucking pussy. I'm just a pussy. But but get this. The monkey runs up and slaps the bear in the face. The The bear runs off and the monkey turns to Jeff with an outstretched hand, looking for more gum. This monkey will do anything for more of that hubba bubba so jeff gives him some and realizes that he can tame and train the monkey with the gum he's made a new friend and now he's not alone anymore jeff and the monkey eventually arrive at a camp of like-minded environmentalists who are out looking for the urban legend known as tessie a sea monster said to be spotted in the nearby lake jeff being tired by this point in the night decides to spend the night in a spare tent with the monkey Jeff wakes up early the next morning before any of the Tessie watchers have awoken. It's really early, and he discovers that the monkey is no longer in the tent. Naturally, you should think it's a monkey, you know, it could do what he wants, but he's concerned. So then he hears the sound of the monkey outside. Jeff goes out to see what's going on and spots the monkey blowing a massive bubble levitating in the air. It's it's kind of glorious. It's it's a miracle. And it's looking like the wind is going to carry the monkey out onto the water. Jeff rushes after the monkey and grabs him by the tail. But oh no, now Jeff is floating in the air with the monkey and they are carried out away from shore over the water. Again, the composition of this, like just seeing Jeff hold on to the monkey's leg with this bubble, it's silhouetted by the rising sun. It's it's kind of beautiful. You, you kind of almost want to paint it. And it looks like that they'll be plunged into the water when suddenly Tessie, the sea monster, arises from the water and Jeff and the monkey land on her head miraculously. It's an incredible moment. 
who knows when Tessie will pop up again. It's just pure fate that it popped up at this moment when they needed the most. And now there's this extended sequence where Jeff and the monkey ride on the back of Tessie and observe the various people and places along the shore of the lake. It's a moment of calm and serenity. Jeff and the monkey make it to the other side of the lake where Jeff makes his way to a small laboratory that's been built seemingly in the middle of nowhere. You can tell that this person, whoever built this, does not like people. But we can also tell that Jeff is very familiar with this laboratory. He takes a deep breath, opens the door, and says, Hey, Dad? All right, now to the fun stuff. We cut back to Ness and Paula, who are re-entering Tucson, fresh off of their adventure. Ness tells Paula that the next place they have to go is Saturn Valley, but he has no idea where it is, as it's not on any map that he's ever seen. Paula says she has an idea, pointing to a creepy dude staring at them from across the street, holding a big sign that says, Hint. Methinks you are in need of a hint. And they, they do it. They, they're out of options. They, they give this guy, the hint guy, five bucks. And the man, seemingly all-knowing, this man never comes back. It's just a moment of weirdness. The moment reveals that... What you seek is behind the forests of Threed. What they're looking for lies in the forest behind the town of Threed. Cut to Ness and Paula trying to walk to Threed via a tunnel that connects the two towns. However, there is... This creepy, horror-esque scene in which they find themselves suddenly haunted and subsequently overwhelmed by ghosts that reside in the tunnel. They realize that there's no way through, and they turn back toward Tucson. Ness and Paula, defeated, sit on the curb outside the Chaos Theater, trying to figure out what to do. The Runaway Five, a local band, is performing at the theater as they do every night. Paula knows them, and as they're unloading the van right in front of them, they they strike up a conversation with her. Paula and Ness tell them that they're trying to figure out a way to get to Threed. And then the lead singer of the Runaway Five says, Man, I feel that. We've been trying to get out of Tulsa for years, but our manager just won't let us out of our contract. Uh, But you don't care about that. That's adult stuff. Unless he had $10,000 lying around. He kind of hopes they have $10,000. Ah, but anyway, if you did, we'd take you to three ourselves on the way to the big city. They leave Ness and Paula as they enter the theater. This gives Ness and Paula an idea to buy the Runaway Five out of their contract and leave Tucson. The problem is, they don't have $10,000. Ness is reluctant, but finally offers, I have to make a call. Ness, at the hotel, uses a phone call to call his father. It's awkward. You can tell these two aren't close, even though Ness's father is is very friendly. He seems like a really nice guy. You can just tell they haven't spent a lot of time together. Ness Ness dodges around while he's calling at first and, and just does not mention money at all. But he does tell his dad that he's in Tucson, out exploring. And immediately, Ness's dad says... Say no more. Wiring you some cash now. You'll want to see the sights when you're out there. This dad, he isn't concerned that he's out at this other town all on his own. He just provides money and hope Ness has a good time. Ness gets the money easier than he thought he would. But what he really wanted, the emotional connection with his father, still hasn't come true. Ness rejoins Paula outside. 
I got the cash. What? How? Paula responds. Ness shrugs. I don't know. My dad has a lot of money. That sounds kind of sad about it. Not kind of sad, really sad. Like, you know, he's kind of fishing, but Paula doesn't really bite. Anyway, in the theater, Ness and Paula catch the tail end of the Runaway 5 performing. They're good, but the production quality is low. It's bad sound, bad lighting. This is a pretty rinky-dink theater, but you can tell that they got it. These are cool guys. Uh, the Runaway Five kind of have like a like a Blues Brothers thing going, but instead of just like the two brothers, it's like six of them. And after the show, Ness and Paula approach the manager in his office. The manager is this foreboding figure who sits behind a tall desk, just counting his money. That's his favorite thing to do. He's like he's like Mr. Krabs, and. Ness, he sweeps, he sweeps his hand across the desk and just shoves all the money off the table. And then he slams a bunch more money onto the table as to replace the previous amount of money and show this is is the money I got for you. And he goes, we want to buy the Runaway Five out of their contract. The manager doesn't even look up. He just starts laughing at them. Buy the Runaway Five out of their contract. Yeah, right. You'd have to have 10,000. The manager does a saliva fueled spit take as he sees the cash that Ness has laid down. The manager is instantly enamored with the money, even though it's like the same amount that was just sweeped off. New money's new money and is all sure. Sure, kid, you can have the band. This is this is more money than they've made from me in years. The Runaway Five, as if on cue, triumphantly march into the office in this like fun sort of running gag they do. They each take their own individual and highly choreographed and scripted turn to rub this victory in the face of their manager and give a last hearty goodbye. Smell you later, fats. I'm driving. Boys, pops on me. Good luck finding another act, Jack. We are out of here. Send us a postcard from the unemployment line, boss. Bibbity boop. Your career is goop. Quick transition cuts to Ness and Paula getting in the Runaway Fives band with them. The band triumphantly turning up the volume of their music all the way to the top. The van speeds recklessly through the streets of Tucson toward the tunnel. They enter the tunnel and the sound of music reverberates off of the walls. The ghosts that reside there attempt to come near the van, but they are all blasted away by the sound of rock and roll. The band drops Ness and Paula off in three. By this time, it is night, and the town looks eerily abandoned. Most of the windows on buildings are boarded up. It looks like a ghost town. The van takes off, leaving Ness and Paula alone. They look around, unsure of what to do. A weird guy who's decked out in body armor and has a flamethrower on his back. The first, This is the first guy they see in the town. Suddenly marches down the street. This is not Tucson. This is not Onet. They are... They're in something else entirely. He yells to these kids, Hey, you kids, you don't know it's past curfew? You better get inside. There are strange things out this time of night in Threed. Ness asks, What kind of things? Zombies, he responds before wandering off. Ness and Paula are confused by this. Zombies? Paula asks. Maybe we should head inside. They head into the nearby hotel where things don't seem quite right. First of all, it's the same carpet from The Shining, but Ness and Paula haven't seen that movie, so they don't think anything of it. It also stinks to high hell in there. They approach the concierge, and something is definitely not right with him. He speaks woodenly and moves awkwardly. How may I help you, children? Um, we're looking for a room. Absolutely, let me just... And then he just starts banging away at the typewriter. Just like... 
just violently at this typewriter. And then he suddenly stops and he just smiles at Ness and Paula. And Ness is just like, uh, and he, he, he's just curious. So he looks over the desk to see what's been written. And it's as follows. Ness, 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 Ness. Suddenly, a scantily dressed woman appears behind Ness and Paula. I can take over from here. She seems welcoming at first. Why don't we show these nice children to their room? But it's weird that she's dressed like a stripper. She gets closer to Ness and Paula. As she gets closer, Ness and Paula realize that she's wearing a sort of skin suit. And it has begun to fall off of her, revealing rolling, revolting flesh beneath. She looks like the old woman from The Shining. As she says this, zombies come out from all the rooms and swarm Ness and Paula. Ness and Paula awaken in a dungeon. As they awake, Paula tells Ness that she had a dream about some kid. She doesn't know what it means, but just then, there's a massive bang and an explosion in the side of the dungeon. When the dust settles and Ness and Paula look to see what it is, they see Jeff standing in front of a crashed flying saucer of some sort. Paula Jones, he says. I think I saw you in my dream. End of episode. Episode four. This episode stinks. So we open with Ness, Paula, and Jeff breaking out of the dungeon. They kick some zombie butt and end up emerging from the three graveyard. It's established here early on that while Paula was passed out, she called Jeff to come rescue them. Why Jeff? They're not entirely sure, but he seems like he has good friend potential and is more than willing to accompany Ness and Paula on their journeys. The trio heads back to downtown Threed, where they enter a big circus tent where a few dozen citizens of Threed are sheltered from the zombie menace. When Ness and his friends arrive, they're planning a way to trap the zombies. The citizens of Threed at first write off Ness and his friends as just kids, being unable to help. But Paula, more assertive than Ness or Jeff, stands up for them and insists that they're able to help. They tell the kids that... All of this started in Threed when the factory upriver had a recent change in management and started pumping chemicals into the water. Ness and company decide to head upriver and check out what's going on. On the way, Paula believes that she is hearing music. She stops and asks the others, but only Ness hears it as well. Jeff doesn't. Oh no, is this a psychic thing, he says. Paula and Ness follow the sound into a nearby cave while Jeff reluctantly follows. They make their way through a small little cave and arrive out the other side in Saturn Valley. It's a beautiful, secluded valley dotted with strange little huts. After a moment, they realize that there are also strange little people all about. These are called Mr. Saturns. They look like little heads with big noses and feet attached right where their necks ought to go. They have whiskers and a single hair sticking out from the top of their heads with a bow tied around it. They talk in a distorted fashion, kind of like that one TikTok filter. 
The, the Mr. Saturns are overwhelmingly hospitable. They are magical, psychic beings that are probably not originally from Earth, but have made themselves a nice little home here. They welcome Ness and his friends to their village and tell them all about the factory upriver and the troubles that it's been causing. The Saturns also urge Ness and his friends to explore the factory and investigate what's going on there. Even though they are magical, they are mostly helpless in nature and aren't particularly good at combat. And whoever is running the factory has been kidnapping Mr. Saturns in the middle of the night and spiriting them away to the factory. They unlock a new psychic ability for Ness, PK Rockin', and Jeff and Paula both also find new useful tools, which they equip themselves with before they go. Right before they leave, one of the Saturns tells them that to get to the factory, they'll need to pass through a waterfall, waterfall. where they will have to wait for exactly three minutes three before minutes. it opens. Continuing to head up river, the group finally arrives at the waterfall. There's an extended wide shot that runs for exactly three minutes as Ness, Paula, and Jeff sit around at the side of the river, waiting for the waterfall to part. At first, they express some exasperation that they have to wait so long, but then they maybe shoot the shit a little bit. After all, they haven't had a lot of time to talk about things other than their journey and saving the world. And there's also likely a few moments of just pensive silence and ticking in the nature. Finally, after three minutes, the waterfall splits and allows the trio to pass through. They enter the factory. This factory stinks! exclaims Jeff as they enter. It's true, this factory does stink, and it's run down as all hell. Furthermore, there aren't any people here. New management? Who's running the show here? Ness, Paula, and Jeff make their way through the dark and labyrinthian structure when, before long, they think they hear somebody else in the factory with them. Something suddenly moves behind them, they turn, but nothing's there. They go a little further and at last bump into the mysterious figure. They're about to attack him when... Wait! He shouts in a squeaky little voice. He reveals himself to be a small, little man who is anything but menacing. The name's Road. Brick Road. But that doesn't mean you can walk all over me. Are you fellow connoisseurs of dungeons? The kids are baffled by this. It's a factory, says Jeff. Anything can be a dungeon, even you or I. You'd know that if you'd studied dungeons for as long as I have. An idea almost seems to flash into Brick Road's head, but it's gone just as soon as it came. Brick Road continues to wax poetically about the nature of dungeons and how long ago he set out traveling across the world to study dungeons in the pursuit of creating the perfect dungeon, perfecting the art form, so to speak. The trio is pretty thrown off by this guy. He's a total weirdo. Nice enough dude, but completely off his rocker. You lot seem like brave kids, but you don't know the first thing about dungeons. How about I offer you a little trade? I tell you where you'll find the dungeon boss, and in exchange, when I create the perfect dungeon, you three will come find me and take on my dungeon master's challenge. Kids have no real choice but to agree to these terms. He's right. They don't know where the dungeon boss is. Follow the smell, Brickrow offers before he turns to go and continues his studying. The trio follow their noses deeper into the factory when, at last, they arrive at a water treatment center at the base of the factory, where water is pumped out from the factory into the river. It smells so bad here, but it's completely empty. 
As they step into the room, Paula steps into something that makes a disgusting squish sound. Ew, look what someone did on the floor. That's disgusting. As Ness and Jeff look at what Paula stepped in, the gross mass of whatever it was starts to get bigger and bigger as it rises up and slowly takes on the form of a massive pile of vomit with a face. Master Belch talks in a really low voice, like the plant in Little Shop of Horrors. Ah, Master Belch, he says. What the heck is that smell? It's you, Ness says. Jeff adds, You smell like barf, man. Master Belch counters, I am barf. The universe vomited me out many eons ago when this galaxy was still young. I am a primordial, evil, servant to Gaius, and soon-to-be destroyer of Earth. Belch attacks the kids, and it's at this point that they realize he's all around them. The water in the treatment plant is entirely composed of Belch, and it rises up to attack them as well. The kids engage with Belch in an all-out onslaught. It's a big set piece, very exciting. At last, when all hope seems lost, Ness is about to be devoured by Belch when the jar of fly honey that he bought off Everdread falls out of his backpack. Belch's eyes fall on the honey. That smell, it's simply scrumptious. Belch drops Ness and instead goes for the honey. In this moment of distraction, Ness summons his psychic powers and unleashes PK Rockin' on Belch. Belch, now just going to town on the disgusting honey, has let his guard down, and when the energy hits him, he explodes with the sound of a fart. The water clears up, and the smell starts to dissipate. All of the kidnapped Mr. Saturns start to come out from where they were being held. They thank the kids for rescuing them and escort them back to Saturn Valley. Back in Saturn Valley, they are welcomed as heroes, and an elderly Mr. Saturn comes to personally thank them. He introduces himself as the keeper of the shrine. Come with me. Without any dilly-dally, the keeper of the shrine says that it's time for Ness to visit the third sanctuary location. He leads Ness to the top of a cliffside overlooking Saturn Valley, where there is a pool of some sort of pink, milky liquid. This is Milky Well. He hears the third melody, followed by a message from his mother. Perhaps a memory of something she once told him. She says, Be a thoughtful, strong boy. Ness rejoins his friends. The Saturns tell them that the next sanctuary is across the desert in Foreside. Their journey will be long and difficult, but they've been brave enough to make it this far and should look unflinchingly toward the future. The Saturns offer Ness a cup of magical coffee. Ness drinks from it and gasps. What does he see? End of episode. Episode 5, Beginnings. This episode opens up with a scene which makes it clear that we are about to witness Ness's vision upon drinking this cup of coffee. Because it's not a regular cup of coffee. This is... It's actually unclear whether it's a psychedelic cup of coffee, if it's just regular coffee for the Mr. Saturns, or if just because Ness is a child and he's never had caffeine before, it triggers something in his psychic mind. It's unclear, and to be honest, it doesn't matter. Oh, and this is really important. Everything he's seeing is in claymation. 
in the same style of claymation that you see the Earthbound figurines that were advertised with the game. If you don't know what those are, just Google Earthbound Claymation. It'll come up immediately. And as another note, the events that Ness witnesses right now are the events of the first game in the Mother series, Earthbound Beginnings, also known as Earthbound Zero, or just Mother One. Right now, Ness is transported to Podunk, a town not unlike Onet, but with much more 1950s, 1960s vibe to it. And I don't want you to think Mad Men. I want you to think more 1960s American graffiti, where it's like a small farming town sort of vibe. Everything is very retro. We meet Ninten, a young kid who lives with his parents and two sisters. As we're watching this, Ness hovers over Ninten. He's like a weird, reluctant guardian angel. He just has to watch what Ninten's doing. And he's hovering over Ninten, who sits sleeping on the couch. It's unclear whether or not Ness can be seen in this state, but we are Ness in this moment. And as if possessed, Ness starts to yell to Ninten. He starts to ask, Hey, what's your name? Over and over again, until at last, Ninten's eyes shoot open and he just says, Just like that, a nearby lamp shoots itself at Ninten and begins to attack him. This scene has kind of a freaky horror vibe to it, as Ninten discovers magic exists for the first time. He beats the lamp, because it's a lamp. It's not that hard. He breaks it. And Ninten's mother sits him down for the talk, and she tells him that his grandfather was gifted with psychic abilities and that it's possible these abilities have been passed down to him. Ninten then sets out from home to discover the nature of his abilities and learn the ways of magic. It's it's very much parallel to Ness's journey. They, they feel very similar. As Ninten makes his way to downtown Podunk, he finds himself mysteriously drawn to the local cemetery. Unsure of why, Ninten follows the urge into the cemetery where he eventually arrives at a tombstone marked solely with George. No last name. There's an air of menace about the area. Ninten looks at the grave for a moment and it suddenly starts singing to him. Or at least making music to him. It's a short little melody and it's over pretty soon, but it leaves Ninten stunned. It takes him a moment before he realizes he's not alone in the cemetery anymore. <laughs> a few plots away, there is a little girl named Pippi who's crying beneath a tree. Ninten goes to her and asks what's wrong. Pippi tells Ninten that she came here to hide after being at the local zoo where the animals have recently all become hostile and they had to shut the zoo down. This sounds vaguely familiar with what Ninten experienced with the lamp. He comforts Pippi for a moment and decides... He better check that zoo out. Ninten makes his way to the front gate of the zoo. It's completely abandoned, and animals are running about everywhere. Ninten goes in all sneaky-like, avoiding the attention of any of the hostile animals. There's lions, gorillas, and bears. It's stressful. As he's sneaking, Ninten accidentally bumps into what he at first believes is an animal. But then he looks up, and it turns out to be a star man. The same kind of alien android that Ness encountered back on Onet. And it's revealed that the animals are under the control of the Starman as he threatens to sick them on Ninten. Just as the Starman is about to attack, Ninten is pulled through a portal and is suddenly transported to a new, strange land made up of pink clouds. This is Magican. And Ninten is in the throne room of its ruler, Queen Mary. 
Queen Mary tells Ninten that he was just attacked by a star man, a member of an alien army assembled by Gygus. This should sound familiar to the audience as they realize that Gygus' invasion in Ness's time is not his first attempt at invading Earth. Queen Mary tells Ninten that Gygus can only be defeated with the eight melodies, which he must assemble from around the world in order to use them against him. Mary sings the first melody to Ninten, but to her surprise, he finishes it for her. He already knows the melody, he's heard this. It's the same melody that Ninten heard at the gravestone that was marked George. Mary finds this encouraging, sees it as a sign, and sends Ninten out to find the other seven melodies. Mary tells Ninten that he can leave Magikant and return to Earth at any time by visiting the Forgotten Man outside. The Forgotten Man. Ninten has, has no idea what, what that means, but he, he goes anyway. Ninten leaves the throne room and walks through Magikant a bit as he heads towards the Guardian of the Gate. As Ninten departs, he sees these big buff guys with wings and beaks just off to the side. These are the Flying Men. They call themselves Flying Men, and they are the residents of Magikant, and they all bow to Ninten as he goes. For some reason... It feels like he's connected to this world somehow. He rules it, and they don't really know why. It's It seems fateful. The flying men lead Ninten to a cavern, which they tell him leads back to Eagle Land. Ninten enters the cavern, and at the very end of the cave, he meets the Forgotten Man. And the Forgotten Man is just this really... I don't want to say creepy. He's just a... He's just a man that is looking the other way from you. He's just looking at the wall. He's really nothing. And he tells Ninten that. He says, I am a forgotten man. I'm not really here. My conversation is always a monologue. I am a man who does not exist. Why do you insist on talking to me? Are you a forgotten man too? Ninten responds, No. And the forgotten man goes, I thought not. You are merely a passerby. I will allow you to return to Earth on the condition that you forget you ever met me. Forget I ever existed at all. Ninten agrees. And just like that, he's back on Earth in the town of Marysville. Similar to how Ninten felt the beckoning of the grave, Ninten again finds himself called to the local elementary school called Twinkly Elementary School. More specifically, he's called up to the roof of the Twinkly Elementary School. On the roof he finds a trash can where a young boy, Lloyd, get me out of here, has been trapped inside by the school bullies. Ninten assumes, much like most of us, that Lloyd is bullied because he's a nerd. But as they get to know each other better, we realize that Lloyd isn't bullied because he's a nerd. They bully him because Lloyd's a fucking freak. Hey, do you want to watch me blow this up? a pyrotechnic with a natural penchant for destruction. In a test to see whether he can trust Ninten, Lloyd has Ninten buy him something from the general store across the street. Ninten asks, What do you want? Lloyd looks around shiftily and whispers, A rocket! He might be a freak all the other days of his life, but right now, he's what Ninten needs the most. Together with the rocket that Ninten brings him, they blow up an abandoned classroom. Wow, that was Awesome. Ninten is horrified, but Lloyd is thrilled to have a new friend that will let Lloyd be Lloyd. And they flee the scene. 
And Nintendo and Lloyd traveled to Snowman, a small, snowy church town type of place. And they're continuing their quest for the eight melodies. And they arrive at a church where Anna, a young girl, is playing hooky. And when they when they enter the church, Anna's just playing the organ all by herself. It's it's kind of ominous. It, it feels like fate again. When they get to her, she stops playing and she tells the boys that she started skipping school ever since her mother went missing. Immediately, Ninten feels a strong connection with Anna. And Anna feels it too. Ninten offers Anna a place in their little group as they continue to look for the melodies. Anna happily agrees. The way Ness views all this is it's not... He's not viewing all of this. He's just viewing bits and pieces of, of a larger story, trying to put them together. And... Randomly, it just cuts to the three of them sitting at a karaoke bar in a town called Elay, planning their next move. Lloyd is skeptical about the journey that Ninten is taking them on, but Ninten assures him that when the time comes, Lloyd and Anna will be able to hear the melodies too. Just as he says that, Ninten is called up with his friends to sing karaoke. All right, next up we have Ninten and friends. Anna signed them up. <laughs> and Ninten is reluctant to sing for some reason. But much like any good karaoke partner, Anna rationalizes this by saying that they might as well practice singing for when the time comes, when they really have to belt all eight melodies. And as their song comes on, it becomes clear why Ninten did not go up there. Try, as soon as he opens his mouth to sing, his asthma begins to act up. And Ninten flushes red with embarrassment. He can't breathe, and he's just he's just dry heaving, wanting to get out of there. But Anna Anna pulls him aside and reacts not in the way he expected her to. She calms him down, teaching him a special breathing technique she learned from her mother. Ninten tries the technique on his own. He's fine. He's calm. It's like nothing happened. And with the second half of the song still ahead of them, Ninten rejoins. As they finish their song, a mysterious gang watches them in the back of the bar. At the end of their set, Ninten is pinned against the wall by this group. Their leader, Teddy, who's this big old tough guy. He's younger than he looks, but he's, he's the type of guy where he's like 19, but he looks 40. He had to grow up a lot faster than everyone else. He overheard them talking about their plan to collect these eight melodies and defeat these aliens and he's interested in what they know teddy talks about the death of his parents at the hands of these aliens no one in elay believed him that it happened and as a result teddy has been shunned by the adults of the town and has been forced into a life of crime convinced that ninten is the key to saving his reputation teddy threatens to kill ninten and his friends right there if he doesn't tell them what they know but ignorant of Ninten's abilities, Ninten wipes the floor with Teddy and his goons and explains to him that they're on the same side here. Teddy, 
embarrassed by his brashness, asks if they need a babysitter or something. And he suggests replacing Lloyd as the third member of the group, calling him a fucking nerd. Before Lloyd can blow Teddy up, Anna eases the situation by telling Teddy about the disappearance of her own mother. And there's this moment where they kind of understand each other, understand that everyone in this group has experienced some type of loss. And then a giant robot bursts through the wall. There's robots here now. And this robot is the R7037. It's this giant robot, and it is strong. None of the gang's attacks seem to be working, and Ninten begins to panic. Assessing the situation, Teddy and his gang distract the robot, bullying Nintendo to go find the rest of their stupid song so they can kumbaya and save the world or whatever. As they run out of there, we hear, You haven't seen the last of Teddy, but believe it! And they do believe it. They'll see Teddy again. This leads to a montage where Ninten, Lloyd, and Anna travel around the country collecting the next six melodies. They travel to different towns and beautiful environments all over. There are tons of little opportunities for character moments here as we see Ninten and Anna's relationship getting closer and closer. And Lloyd gets to blow some shit up too. It's a, it's a fun time all around. Finally, they arrive in Youngtown, a small village at the base of of a mighty mountain called Mount Etoy, where all of the adults have been abducted. The town, as a result, is comprised solely of children. If you can't picture this, just Google the show Kid Nation. It's a lot like the show Kid Nation. They're just running everything, and it's kind of chaos. But if you're a kid, it's kind of fun. And Anna finds herself absolutely intrigued by this town for two reasons. First of all, her parents were also abducted, so she feels a kinship with the kids of Youngtown. Secondly, in Anna's mind, this place is a utopia. It's like the Jimmy Neutron kids set up an egalitarian society instead of going completely Lord of the Flies. However, there is still an underlying menace here. It's too perfect. Ninten tries to convince Anna and Lloyd to leave, but they become content with the idea of staying there. They don't need to defeat Gygus. They're happy now. This this is great. It's at this point that Teddy shows up. What I tell you? Bruised and beaten, but somehow tougher. He's tougher now. He's seen some shit. He's ready to help and rejoin them. He tells Ninten that after they left, he managed to beat the robot, and he's been trailing just behind them ever since Elay. He warns Ninten that if they stay in this place, they're all going to end up just like him, going nowhere in life. Call your mother while you have one. Teddy helps Ninten by physically lifting Anna and Lloyd with his massive stature and carrying them out of Youngtown and up the side of Mount Etoy. At first, Anna and Lloyd are pissed, but they forget about it when they notice that at the top of the mountain, the alien invasion has begun. After collecting seven of the eight melodies, these are seasoned warriors now. They head up Mount Etoy and are just stomping on Starman left and right. They head into a cave where they encounter a large crimson robot, Eve, who they at first mistake for an adversary. However, they discover that it's actually on their side. Lloyd exclaims, Guys, I am about to build the biggest rocket. Eve stops him. Actually, young Master Lloyd, you'll want to refrain from scrapping me for part, as I've been specifically programmed to protect young Master Ninten. 
programmed. By who? They ask. George. Is all that she responds. It's dark at this point, and before leaving their cavern to return to their trek to the top of the mountain, the crew decides to camp for the night. Lloyd and Teddy, who did not get along at all well at first, have started to warm up to one another. You want to see my fireworks? Oh yeah, I hear those are going to be illegal soon. The two run out of the cave, leaving Ninten and Anna alone. The two flirt a little bit, but there's a kind of awkward tension as both of them are too shy to make the next move. Finally, Eve, who is just kind of sitting awkwardly behind them, decides to relieve the tension by revealing a record player that's built into her. She drops the needle and starts playing a classic slow song. Ninten works up the courage to ask Anna to dance, and they do so. It's a nice tender moment before the final battle. As the song dies down, it looks as if Ninten and Anna might share a kiss, but they are stopped by the sound of Jeff's fireworks. The moment is lost. Ninten and Anna smile shyly at each other. However, outside the fireworks are growing louder. Does Lloyd really have that many? The, the booms just keep coming. Finally, Lloyd arrives at the cave entrance. Uh, guys, you're gonna wanna get out here. Ninten and Anna join Lloyd and Teddy outside, where they see a massive R7038 robot descending toward them. The four get ready for battle and are joined also by Eve, who towers over them. Then we have a massive set piece. Very cool. Lots of explosions and fighting. Eve and the R7038 are absolutely just decking each other. It's like Rock'em Sock'em robots, but on a massive scale. Think Pacific Rim, but just with robots, no monsters. During the battle, Teddy has a bit of hubris because he's fought one of these robots before. All right, here we go. He shouts as he haphazardly launches himself at the robot. Eve's programming whips into gear as she sees Teddy putting himself in danger. She jumps in front of Teddy, knocking him out of the way, but wounding him in the process. However, Eve takes the brunt of a fatal attack that would have landed on Teddy instead. The R7038 punches into Eve's chest and rips out a bunch of hardware. Eve falls to the ground with a massive thud. In a fit of vengeful anger, Ninten unleashes more powerful psychic magic than he's ever used before and completely fries the enemy robot. He goes to Eve in her dying moments and she gives to Ninten the final melody. Anna and Lloyd resolve to carry Teddy back down the mountain to get him help. Ninten agrees that he must go on alone from this point. Ninten makes it to the top of Mount Itoi where he finally comes face to face with Gygus, a slender white alien that is humanoid, but kind of looks like a cross between Mewtwo and Frieza from Dragon Ball Z. Ninten walks dramatically toward Gygus, but as he gets closer, the ground around him turns to pink clouds and Gygus is seemingly transformed into Queen Mary. Ninten is back in Magicant. Queen Mary has appeared to give Ninten a final warning about Gygus that she did not tell him before. She tells him that she was once a regular human woman who lived with her husband George. They were both one day abducted by an advanced alien race with psychic abilities. 
However, to use these abilities, the aliens must first experience love, something which they were lacking on their homeworld. Together, Maria and George raised Gygus, a baby alien, and showed him all the love in the world. However, unbeknownst to Maria, George was secretly studying Gygus and working to harness the psychic abilities for himself. Shortly after Maria and George had a human child of their own, Gygus became more and more jealous and volatile. George sought to take his experiments back to Earth where he could help the human race arm themselves against this alien threat. When Gygus discovers this, George lashes out at Gygus and attacks him, much to the horror of Maria and Gygus. Maria, feeling betrayed by George, turns George into the aliens. The aliens return George to Earth after stripping him of most of his research. George, however, maintains psychic abilities which he passed down through his family line. Maria reveals that Ninten is her and George's great-grandson. After Gygus was attacked, he became more and more withdrawn, more and more hostile. Even though Maria never stopped loving him, he forgot how to love himself. Driven by malice and a hatred for George and other humans, he has become intent on destroying Earth. She urges Ninten to stop Gygus from becoming the monster she knows he isn't. Deep down, she still cares for him like a mother. Maria returns Nest to the peak of Mount Etoy where no time has passed at all, and Gygus is still waiting for him. The two begin to brawl. They're evenly matched, but none of Ninten's psychic attacks have any effect on Gygus. Naturally, they are the same power. Ninten remembers that he has the power of the eight melodies. He readies his breath, but Gygus kicks some dirt up in his face, <laughs> triggering an asthma attack from Ninten. Ninten takes a moment to recall the breathing exercises that Anna taught him, and he overcomes the asthma attack. He begins to sing the eight melodies. Flash to horror in Gygus's eyes. Flash to Gygus as an infant. In the arms of Maria, she is singing this song to him. The eight melodies is the lullaby that Maria sang to Gygus as a child. As Ninten sings the song, Gygus is reminded of what love feels like. Since his power is fueled by hatred, this weakens him considerably. However, also in that moment, Gygus realizes that Ness is the heir of George. Flashing back to that memory of a baby Gygus watching Maria sing that lullaby but then turning to their side to see a human baby enjoying that same song. Ninten takes advantage of the distracted Gygus to swing at him with his bat, causing a massive smash to his skull. This causes Gygus to scream in pain. Gygus, aware of his imminent defeat, swears revenge on Ninten, promising that he'll be back. In some form, they are destined to meet again. Before Ninten can take another swing, Gygus escapes through a hastily made portal back to his galaxy. Ninten, now alone, is slow to take in that he just saved the Earth. All around him, he hears the murmurs and groans of what sounds like people waking up. Out of weird alien-looking pods emerges the missing parents of Earth's children, including Anna's mom. 
At the base of the mountain, Anna apprehensively waits. Suddenly, from around the trail emerges Ninten, limping alone. Anna begins to run with him, but stops when she sees a parade of people march in behind Ninten. They actually did it. The gang hugs and reunites and everyone celebrates. We cut to a hospital room where a critically injured Teddy lies in a hospital bed, talking to Ninten. Teddy cries, apologizing about Eve, exclaiming that it should have been him. He's already had his chance to live. He's an adult now. The fun and joy he could have had is long past him. Ninten reassures him. You never stop really being a kid. A week later, things seem back to normal. Ninten and his friends are rewarded for their efforts by the adults of the surrounding cities. Gifted with a fortune as thanks, Ninten and his family live their life comfortably back at their upgraded house. We see Ninten read a letter from Anna. They appear to be dating. Finally, we see Maria reunited with the forgotten man, George, who approaches her remorsefully. The two embrace as all is forgiven. What is Ness name? is swirling through an endless what void. What is your name? What is your name? What's your name? Ness. Ness awakens from his vision, back in Saturn Valley. Whoa, that must have been some cop of joke. Shouts one of the Mr. Saturns. Ness, are you alright? Paula asks him. You've been in a trance for the last minute. Ness takes a deep breath. Gygus is coming. End of episode. Thank you so much for listening to the first half of Earthbound. This episode was a lot of work. So in order to maintain the quality of the piece and not kill ourselves, we've decided to split this episode into two parts. Part two will be coming next week, along with the credits for all the songs used. Please stay tuned for the exciting conclusion of our Earthbound pitch. And as always, if you want to keep up to date with all things Mise on Smash, you can visit our Twitter at Mise on Smash Pod, or you can follow our personal Twitters at P. Simmons Hayes and at Simon Lewisong. Thanks a lot, guys. See you next week. <laughs>